0: Hey, Crispin Schroeder here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part 29 in our series on the Gospel of John. This one is called From Above or From Below. Hey, also, we got all kinds of things happening at North Shore Vineyard right now. Uh, Coming up on October 20th, we celebrate Fall for Art again. We have five local artists who are going to be showing their work at our church on a Saturday night As well as live painting, live music Lots of food So come on out for that Also we're doing our second annual chili cook-off On November 4th uh, With proceeds to benefit local nonprofit groups So visit us at Northshorevineyard.org For information on both of those things As well as other events that we have coming up Thanks for listening Let's head on over to the talk 525 East Boston Street, downtown Covington North Shore Vineyard Church Anyway, you ever had? I, I had a funny thing happen. You, you get used to to meeting certain people in church, and and, and and folks in church, we do some things that that people don't typically do in regular everyday life. And, and one of those things is sometimes, you know, you hug people, right? Right? You got any huggers? Who's a hugger in here? Yeah, I'm not the hugger in our house. My little boy Ezra. He's he he won't let me get out the house without giving him a hug. He's just a hugger. But I've, I've, So I'm not naturally like that, but I've learned being around church that sometimes, you know, people want to hug. And you've got that awkward thing sometimes where you think someone's going to shake your hand, and then they go in for the hug. And that's funny when it, when it uh, happens to you, you know, like I'm offering my hand. But the other day, it happened to somebody in the neighborhood here who sometimes I just get confused where I know someone from. Um, I'd actually met this guy at a cigar shop. and <laughs> And I'm walking back down the back down the uh, little alleyway back here, and I'm I'm on the phone. I'm talking with a, a local pastor friend who was up from the South Shore, and we're just talking to stuff. And this guy comes up and he he waves at me, and he's kind of got his hand out, and I've got stuff in my hand, so I think he's going in for the hug. And I forget, like I thought that I knew the guy from church, and so I I go in for the hug, and and I <laughs> and I walk away. I'm telling my friend Brian, I'm like. I just hugged that guy, and that's not a guy that I would normally hug, uh, but maybe he just, maybe he just needed a hug that day, maybe God was, Brian was like, yeah, he kind of seemed a little stiff there, <laughs> so uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with my message today, um, i got to be honest, reading this message, it was, uh, it was, it was a tough one to, to figure out. We've been going through the Gospel of John since like last November, and we've made it up to chapter 8. So... Um. We've kind of been committed to this process of going through the Bible in a way that whether you're a new Christian, a non-Christian, or have been in church a long time, that, that hopefully we can all learn something about studying the Bible and encountering Jesus. But the, our, our chosen method is that we're just going to go through it a few verses at a time and cover whatever comes up. If I wasn't committed to that process, I would have avoided some of this because it's just, as you'll see, at some point it gets a little hard to bridge between the world of jesus at at that time and and those circumstances and our modern world but we are going to get there but to get there i'm going to do a little refresher on the context of of this passage a lot of times folks have you ever done this with your bible before you're like god please speak to me and you like open it up and you know what's the word for me today right is anybody is anybody ever want to admit doing that okay yeah um But the only problem with that or even just opening up your Bible to any random prophecy from Jeremiah or something and saying, what what do you want to speak to me today? A lot of times we're we're taking stuff completely out of the original context and then we're just jumping into our modern world without any... You know, understanding what it actually meant to the original hearers. So I want to give us a little cultural context, looking at the book of John real quick to, to to build up to this. Because today we're going to look at some of the words of Jesus, which were his harshest words that he said so far in the Gospel of John. And if you read them without knowing the context, you're not going to understand why Jesus is being so hard. So, you with me? We're going to cover a lot of the Gospel of John now. Buckle your seatbelts. I'm just having... Trouble talking this morning. Um, we've been for the last couple of months. We've been in a part of John where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, or, or what the Jewish people referred to as the Festival of Booths, and it was one of the uh, of a few major festivals that would be celebrated in in Jerusalem. And people would come from all over, and they would erect these little booths and kind of commemorate how God took care of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Um, Jesus' brothers are getting ready to go to the feast and they tell Jesus, look, Jesus, your your ministry is great. You're doing all kinds of wonderful things. You're doing miracles that that turn, you know, that making bread, you know, feeding the five thousand. Pretty awesome. But your problem is, Jesus, you're doing this in Galilee which was Galilee, just so you understand, it it's works out well for us. Galilee is the North Shore, okay? So Galilee would be like Covington, and Jerusalem would be like New Orleans. They're about the same distance apart from each other. And so Jesus' brothers were saying, look, all these miracles and, and words you are saying, all this stuff is great, but you're doing it in Galilee. If you want to get known, if you want to take this show on the road, go to Jerusalem in the middle of the festival. And Jesus tells his brothers, I'm not going. But then Jesus changes his mind a little later. Now, the reason why it was such a big deal for Jesus to go to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem was the one place on planet Earth where there was a lot of people who wanted to kill Jesus at this point. And let me give you the background on that. Most of Jesus' ministry, uh, as recorded in all the, the, the other three Gospels and, and even in the Gospel of John, most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. It was in the fishing villages on the North Shore where he, where he grew up. And people were a lot more receptive to Jesus there. But Jesus made it to Jerusalem a couple of times that we see in the Gospel of John. But every time he shows up, he does something that just drives the religious people crazy. Like the first time he shows up in Jerusalem in the Gospel of John, what does he do? He goes straight up to the temple. This was the place that was the most holy place. And it wasn't like a little building like this. It took up blocks and blocks. Huge building. (laughs) Jesus goes in there and he starts turning over the tables, running people out of there. Now, you could see how provocative that event might have been, Right? I think we get that in one sense like we can kind of think of what if somebody came into our church on a Sunday morning and just started turning over chairs and running people out of here we'd be like what Jesus comes into the temple and and runs all these money changers out of there but you know that that when we covered this last December uh I said that 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 was really a messianic act that's what the messiah was expected to do there there had actually been some other people that they had thought were the messiahs before jesus came on the scene and they had gone to the temple that was their first act they would go to jerusalem come into the city through the east gate go to the temple and cleanse it and so part of what jesus was doing was this the thing of saying i'm the messiah i have authority over this temple and but it didn't go over real well with the religious crowd then there's a scene that we, we talked about probably about six months ago, where Jesus again comes to Jerusalem, this time in the middle of some festival. We don't know what it was. And he finds this lame guy who had was, was paraplegic laying by the pool of Bethesda. The pool of Bethesda was in Jerusalem. And it was this pool that, that was kind of regarded with superstitious powers. The, everybody sat by the pool thinking, you know that an angel was going to come and stir the waters, and, it, and the first person in the pool gets healed. Well, this, there was a guy who'd been there for 38 years by the side of this pool, and Jesus comes up to him and heals him. And you think, great, Jesus is healing people. That's awesome. But it didn't go over well. Why? Because Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath day. The, the Pharisees were like, you could heal somebody any day of the week. Why do you choose to heal them on the Sabbath day? And Jesus is really, he could have healed him on any other day. He's trying to point out something about their religion. It was valuing externals, but really wasn't interested in connecting people to God and really seeing people healed and restored. So these are kind of a few of the the things that have happened along the way. And Jesus is so. So in in Jerusalem, there's actually people that are thinking about killing Jesus at this point. They're not just angry. They want to do away with him. They see him as a threat. And so we, we come now to the to the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and Jesus comes to that festival in the middle of the week, kind of incognito, he sneaks in, but at some point he goes to the temple, he begins preaching, teaching the people, and, and folks are like, man, this guy's amazing, we've never heard words like this before, but it's said that they were afraid to share what they, they thought, because they knew that the, the Pharisees and the priests were angry with Jesus, and they thought, if we get lumped in with him, we may get killed, but yet Jesus... In the midst of their festival, he just keeps on going because his time hadn't come. Then we finally find where we've been the last few weeks. We're on the last day of this festival. It was, a, it was a week-long festival. And it culminated with some... As a lot of the festivals in Jewish tradition, they would build to a kind of a climax. And on the final day of the festival, you have Jesus on the opening, on the, in the beginning of the day. He comes into the temple. And it's, it's during a time where they would have poured water and wine around the altar... And this was symbolic of, of, of rain, and, and wine was symbolic of, of fruit. And it, it, they, it, as they would do this, they would offer prayers of intercession to God. Please send us rain. Let us have good crops. And in the midst of that, Jesus gets up and says, If you're really thirsty, if you really want to be alive, come to me. And I'll give you rivers of living water. So Jesus is taking the symbolism of this festival. He says, "Look, that thing points to the reality, which is me." Later on in that afternoon, as Penny told us two weeks ago, there was uh, the the Pharisees are at this point they're getting desperate. They're trying to find any way that they can trick Jesus. So they bring a woman who was caught in adultery. They throw her down at the middle of you know in, in front of Jesus, probably half naked. Now keep in mind, it's in the festival. Okay, so this is like the last day of Jazz Fest. And they which which seems like it would compound the amount of humility and shame that this person would heal. It's not just like a handful of people seeing her, it's a huge crowd gathered in the temple and they throw her down in front of Jesus. And and, and it's a trick. We find out that really they're not that concerned about the adulterous woman. They're trying to trap Jesus. They say, What should we do with her? The, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And it's a trap because if Jesus sides with them with the Old Testament law and says, yeah, let's stone her, then Jesus risks alienating a lot of his followers because guess what? A lot of his followers were people who'd come out of prostitution. people who had come out of tax collecting. These were people who deserved to pay a price for what they'd done. And and they were gathering around Jesus. So if Jesus sides with the Pharisees, he's going to alienate his followers. But if he sides with the woman and says, no, let's be merciful to her, then he's in transgression of the Old Testament law. And then they got him on those charges. And then they can really start working to try him. But Jesus says famously, yeah, you're right. She deserves to die. Whoever is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And so bit by bit, they drop their stones on the ground. This woman looks up. Jesus says, where are your accusers? Where have they gone? She's like, they're, they're all gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Now, this is happening all in the same day. And then last week, I, 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 I talked about Jesus During the evening hours of this festival, on the final day, there was this procession where people would would walk from their homes with lamps and with with torches. And they would make a procession to the temple. And they'd go into the temple. In this one area of the temple, the, the, the court of the women, they would light these 16 bowls full of oil. And they'd be suspended from the ceiling, lighting up these limestone walls. And in the midst of that, Jesus gets up. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Again, Jesus is saying everything that this festival symbolizes is, is met in the reality of me. But again, we see that right in the midst of that, the Pharisees have already tried to, to, to get him to, to, to be trapped by this woman caught in adultery. Now, when, when Jesus says this statement, they start trying to get him on another technical legal argument. And so that brings us to where we're at today. Okay? We've covered most of the Gospel of John. You with me? Okay. So we get to our passage for the day. So Jesus is talking to this crowd that keeps resisting him. There are a mix of people, but he's specifically speaking to the ones that have been resistant to his word. He says, once more... In verse 21, once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that what he's, why he's saying where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would indeed die in your sins if you do not believe That I am He. You will die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But He who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from Him. I tell the world. They did not understand what He was telling them them about His Father. So Jesus said. Whenever you have lifted up the Son of Man. Then you will know that I am He. That I do nothing on my own. But speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. And He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases Him. And even as He spoke, many people believed in Him. Is there anyone in here who's never been to Abita Springs before? All right. That's where I live. Well, in Abita Springs, if you, if you take Highway 59 from, from I-12, you're driving up. Before you hit the main turn that goes into the town, you will see a sign that was created by a local artist, John Preble, who... Um, this guy has put together something called the uh, Abita Mystery House. Anybody been there? It's a strange little roadside attraction. Uh, it's, it's great. Um, but they, he, he's put together this nice sign there as you're coming into town. That's hand-painted, hand-carved. And, and imagine you want to go to Abita Springs, but you really love signs. And so as you're driving into Beta Springs, you see this wonderful sign, and you're like, oh, I'm going to pull over and look at this thing up close. And you go over there, and you look at the sign, and, and you got some friends, and you all start talking about the, the way this sign was carved. Man, look at those letters. They were hand-carved. And, and look at the choice of colors. What? Wow, he used this kind of paint. Look at the messages. It, it tells us about these different things that happen at Abida Springs and these different places we go. This is an amazing sign. And you spend an hour just going over the sign and talking about signs. And then you're like, all right, let's go home. That wouldn't make any sense, right? And yet, that's what we see the Pharisees doing and the, and the priests. They, they know all the signs. They're skilled in, in, in talking about all the things that signify the Messiah's coming. And yet when the Messiah comes, they're still hung up on the signs. They fail to move from the reality those signs were pointing to. To the, uh, They, they fail to move from that reality. From where the signs are pointing to the reality they point to. And it's the problem that a lot of people have when it comes to Jesus. We're, we're, we're okay with seeing signs. But Jesus is, is convicting them because He's saying... You, you, you look at all these things, you accuse me of all these things, but you failed to realize I am the whole point. Jesus tells the Pharisees one time, he says, you, you search the scriptures, for you think in the scriptures you have life. You think just studying your Bible gives you life, but, but it's the very scriptures that testify of me, and you don't see the point. I am the point of these scriptures. I'm the substance of which all these festivals, all the story of Israel was a, a mere signs pointing towards. And so, we find that this passage, Jesus, is really beginning to to utter a harsh term of judgment against them. He says, I told you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. Now, to understand this, you know, because most of the time when we see Jesus, and I think the thing that we like about Jesus is like this adulterous woman's thrown down before Him, and does He... Judge her? No. He welcomes her. We see Jesus welcoming in the Samaritan woman. We see Jesus welcoming in tax collectors and fishermen. We're used to seeing Jesus being very merciful. But in this passage, he says, ah, you're going to die in your sins. What does that mean? What, it sounds kind of judgmental. It sounds like he's condemning them. Well, what is condemnation? Is Jesus the judge here? Well, I want to answer that by looking at John 3.16, one of the most famous passages from John. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' mission wasn't to condemn the world. It was to save, to reconcile people. That's why we see Jesus uh, doing this time and time again with people. In verse 18, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict or the judgment, so to speak. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they've been done has been done in the sight of God. So, so, so we, we find the answer of the judgment of Jesus in this. Jesus didn't come to judge anybody. He's light shining in darkness. He's not coming to condemn people. But, but these guys are, are kind of cutting off the branch that they sit on, so to speak. They have rejected... Their main sin is the sin of unbelief. They refuse to believe that Jesus is the Messiah no matter how many miracles happen in front of them, no matter how many wonderful things Jesus does, no matter how many words they hear from Jesus, they are hardened in their own unbelief. The light has shined into the darkness, but people have loved darkness more than light. Now, now what's the, the great reversal here? The irony is... That the people that we see who consistently love darkness in the Gospel of John, is it the people caught in adultery, the tax collectors? No, it's the religious crowd. It's the ones who already know everything about God. Like the Pharisees, the chief priests. They... Are holding on to darkness. Their deeds are are evil. Maybe they don't commit outward sins that you see, like that are very obvious. It's easy to see someone who's committing adultery or someone who's cheating people through tax collecting. Maybe they look completely moral on the outside, but Jesus says they love darkness more than light. Their deeds are evil. And this is kind of like the, the judgment that Jesus puts on Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Jesus says this, a prophecy against Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. In in Matthew 24, he goes on. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these buildings, he asked? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In the end, God will give us what we want. If we want God, if we truly desire God, he'll let us have that. But if we continue to refuse his grace, at some point he lifts his grace from us. At some point, he says, Look, I can't do anything. And that's what he's telling the Pharisees. It's the same thing he's telling to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, God has sent prophets to you to get you back on track, and you kill the prophets. God's tried to get you to fulfill your call. Actually, there's a place where where Jesus talks about uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. You know that language Jesus was using? That was language about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city on a hill that was meant to be a light. And yet it became known for corruption, for evil, for people who were really more about securing their own power, their own prominence, their own prestige, than following after the ways of God. And finally, Jesus says, look, Jerusalem, you're going to be judged. If you want to live apart from God, ultimately, that's what will happen. God's not going to force you. You can love darkness more than the light. And sure enough, in AD 70, 70 AD, Jerusalem is is destroyed by the Romans. The judgment of Jesus is not a, a conscious judgment on people, it's people's rejection of Him. Darkness has no power unless you empower it yourself. If, if the light comes, you know. Is darkness a force? Can we, can we shoot a darkness ray? No, you shoot rays of light. Darkness is simply the absence of light. And when we reject the light, there's, there's, we, we've cut off the branch on which we're sitting. And Jesus goes on to, 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 to describe it in terms of, he says this, You are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am he. James, the brother of Jesus, would, would actually kind of expand this idea a bit in, in his epistle. He says this in James 3.14. If you harbor, harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For wherever you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. See, in a sense, that's what the, Jesus is saying. Look, you don't understand what I'm saying because you're, you're totally thinking in terms of this world's wisdom. When you go to your jobs, most of you, you work in places that operate according to the principles of the world. Your co-workers, if they're, if they're not motivated by God's wisdom, they're going to be in it for themselves. People become a, a means by which you can get your own agenda down the road. Everyone is seen as a threat because it's bitter envy, selfish ambition. That's the way our world works, right? Sometimes that's the way our families work. Sometimes that's the way it is with our neighbors. But that's the wisdom of this world. It it doesn't take anything to get that kind of wisdom. We come by that naturally. But James goes on to talk about the wisdom of God. But he says the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace loving, considerate submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You know, you could actually replace that word wisdom with Jesus. Jesus is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. See, Jesus, Jesus doesn't come trying to just uh, divide people. He comes bringing peace. He becomes, he comes in humility. He comes bringing life and hope to, to those who are outside. But it's perceived by the Pharisees and the priests as as an attack on them. It's perceived as as their competition. Jesus threatens their power. And Jesus says, look, you're thinking in purely earthly terms here. I'm coming at you with something that's from another place. And Jesus closes this section by saying, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, it says this in verse 27, they still didn't get it, didn't realize that He was referring to the Father. So Jesus tried again. When you raise up the Son of Man, then you will know who I am. That I'm not making this up, but speaking only what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me stays with me. He doesn't abandon me. He sees how much joy I take in pleasing Him. Anybody ever watch that show, Undercover Boss? Well, if you haven't watched it, I've I've caught it a little bit here and there. Uh, Undercover Boss is where they take the CEO or, or president of a company... And he goes incognito and just works at the entry-level job of his company. And imagine... And and, and so why do they do this? Well, for reality TV's sake. But uh, oftentimes the the owner of the company walks away with kind of an epiphany. Like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how hard it was to work for this company. I'm going to change some things to help out your common working people. Oftentimes the owners of these companies find out that they've got some amazing people that are working really hard that are unseen, but then there's also the occasions where the, the owners find out that there's some people that got really bad attitude problems. People who are trying to rip off the business. People who aren't interested in, in helping the company, just getting a paycheck. Imagine a scenario where w- undercover boss, where the owner of a, a shipping company, let's say... He's got people that work in a, in a warehouse. And he goes undercover and, and joins in the, work, in, in, in the warehouse. And people are packing up boxes and stuff. And you got one person who's, every time the boss isn't looking, man, they're just sitting there. Bad-mouthing the boss. Bad-mouthing everything. Sometimes they take a few things from work home with them. Every time they get a smoke break, they're taking it. You know, they're not going to work through that. And and, and they show up late. They leave early. Just the the type of employee that you don't work. Then there's another employee who's got a good work ethic, who's there all the time, who's dependable. Imagine what it's like when these two people discover that this guy that was working with them wasn't a normal guy. This was the boss. Imagine... What their reactions are gonna be like. The person who's been bad mouthing the company, uh, who's been showing up late, who's just been slacking off the whole time, that person's gonna have an oh crap moment. <laughs> I wished I'd have done things a little bit. If I'd have known who was here, if I'd have known my co worker was the owner of this company, I, I would have at least acted like I like it. I can't believe I said that about this company. Oh my goodness. That's kind of like what it is with Jesus, undercover boss. They think he's just the Pharisees think he's just some other person who thinks he's the Messiah. He's come on the scene and Jesus is saying, "When I'm lifted up, you're going to realize it, but it's going to be too late." There's going to come a time where you're going to see me in my glory and 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 it's going to all of a sudden you're going to have this realization that that I am the boss. I've been trying to tell you that. All of a sudden, you're going to realize it. And it's going to be too late. Not because it's going to be too late, but because probably by that time, your hearts are so hardened anyway. What's Jesus mean when He says, when the Son of Man is lifted up? Well, I think the obvious one, number one, is the cross. He's going to be lifted up on a cross, and, and in a way, that's going to look like His defeat. But in a way, that's the, that's the glory of God. The other aspect, I think, is, is when Jesus is lifted up in, in a sense of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the vindication of his whole ministry. Everything he was doing was, was God, God vindicates him. Even death couldn't hold him back. And there's going to be a day... Where these people who've resisted and hardened their hearts in their own unbelief are going to look on and say, Oh my goodness, if I knew that that was God, if I knew that that was the Messiah who was speaking to us, I wish I'd have done things different. But where does this leave us today? That's my hard hard part as I look at this scripture all week. You know, there's the things that we can see of them. And I I suspect if you're here on a Sunday morning, you either have good feelings about Jesus or you're at least open to Jesus. Because you, you got up the courage to walk into a building on a Sunday morning. So I don't think we have, you know, I haven't had anybody shout me down for talking about Jesus today, you know. I haven't even had anybody shout me down, like, in a good way. Somebody shout me down now. Amen. 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 Glory Amen. to God. Whew. All right. <laughs> so, so how do we apply this passage to our own lives? Well, I think the one thing we can see with the Pharisees, they're consi- consistently offered the light of Jesus, and they consistently deny it. Now, theirs is a flat-out rejection. They didn't even get on the road. And, and And for most of you, you've accepted that Jesus is real. or You're at least open to that possibility. I think the bigger question is, are we obeying the light that's given to us? Are we living in the reality of Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Messiah? Are we living in the reality of that? Like, for instance, when you do something boneheaded, when you sin... When you do something you're ashamed of, do you side with what the enemy says about you? Or do you side with what Jesus says about you? Do you live in the light of his truth that, you know, even though I did something that I hate, that I'm ashamed of, that that, that I, I really wished I hadn't done, I realize God is gracious to me, he accepts me. Or do you run like Adam and Eve and hide away from God? That's a failure to live in the reality of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? You didn't get in because you were so good at this thing, okay? <laughs> you didn't get in. You're not in this thing because you're, you're such a good person, okay? And you're not going to stay in because you're such a good person. You're staying in because Jesus is such a good person. And we are all faced with the reality that we can live in that light or we can live in our own shame, our own pride, our own disbelief. We can believe what the enemy... And I I believe that's the way the enemy wants to get so many Christians uh, just weighed down. It's condemnation, it's, it's, it's attacks, accusations in our mind. You're not worthy. You're a mess. Well, yeah, I'm not worthy. Duh. It was never about me being worthy. You're not good enough. Because I find so much even in my own journey. If the enemy can get me in that place. I'm ineffective at loving people. I'm ineffective in in enjoying peace or life or grace or anything. I'm ineffective because I I begin turning inward. It's all about me and what I can do. The best that I can do. And the best that I can do can't get us very far down the road. (laughs) For me. For me. Living in the light is, is, is realizing that, that God, even on my worst day, you love me. And I, I want to believe what you say about me more than what the enemy says about me. More than what my own thoughts say about me. Because I know that's the only path to freedom. So this morning, as, as we just get ready to close, I just want us to, 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 to pause for just a moment and close our eyes and just get quiet with the Lord. And just say, God... Where is it in our lives today that we are resistant to you? Just ask the Lord that right now. Lord, where am I living in disbelief of the good news? Where is my heart? Where is there hardness in my life towards the good news of Jesus Christ? Where am I letting my own thoughts stand against the reality of King Jesus? Come, Lord, come light of the world. Illuminate our hearts this morning.